welcome to the Wesley Memorial Podcast. Join us this Sunday at 1225 Chestnut Drive in High Point. Visit us on the web at wesleymemorial.org. Now here is this week's message. A great movie that encapsulates that idea of, of being taken home, and I was thinking about the movie Saving Private Ryan. It was released in 1998, which is hard to believe. 1998. And that's a famous story of, of uh, I think he had four other brothers and they all got killed in the war and Matt Damon's the only one survived. I'm sorry, I'm giving away the movie. A spoiler alert here. And they have to go and find him and bring him home so that he's the only remaining sibling alive. Now, on June 6, 1944, that was, was known as D-Day, and Western democracy was saved by thousands and thousands of men who are no more really than kids, who had many have never seen combat before. And it's estimated that over 10,000 Allied soldiers died on that one day. Over two-thirds were Americans. Now, the first 27 minutes of Saving Private Ryan, if you've seen the movie, really changed filmmaking forever because it was so intense and so real that some uh, veterans couldn't even watch it. They had to leave the theater because it was so exact and precise. And uh, even Steven Spielberg was worried he was going to get an NC-17 rating. And he said, quote, I feared that almost nobody would see it because the word of mouth would spread quickly after the first 25 minutes. If you've seen the movie, you know that you're immersed in the boat. You're there on the moment. You're seeing it happen in real time like you're there. And audiences were stunned by what they saw. Because you saw just the, the soldiers just being annihilated by what seemed like an insurmountable force of German fortifications. That Hitler knew that if the Allies actually made it onto the beach and they made it into Europe, his advisors told him that the, the, the advanced force would be too much for them to stop and they would probably lose the war. So that's why they fortified France all the way down to Spain to, to fight off this invasion from Britain that he regretted never invading England. And in over 50 years, this is probably the greatest World War II movie ever made. Maybe Hacksaw Ridge is up there as well, if you've ever seen that movie. But now, you're asking, why in the world am I talking about this on Christ the King Sunday? Now, here's a picture of, uh, of one of the beaches. I don't, think, I don't think that's Omaha, but of the invasion. Now, when they were researching the movie, uh, they talked to the men they, who were actually survived, right, who lived through it, and and got, you know, got information from them. It's a very detailed movie. And the men who survived, they said, I thought we were going to lose the war because everyone was dying and I thought we were going to lose. It looked like a lost cause. They had the high ground. They had machine guns. I mean, it was ridiculous. I thought we were going to lose. But then when they interviewed the men who were in the, the blimps and airplanes above and they saw this view, they saw the artillery from the American Navy hitting the shoreline and they saw all the movement of the soldiers and they saw everything happening. The men in the air, they said, I knew we were going to win. Because we could see everything happening, moving, and I could see all the parts and I knew that we were going to win. Now when you're on the ground, not to discredit the experience of being on the ground in war or in life, but it can appear that there's no king. There's just chaos and bloodshed and violence and sin and death. And from our human understanding, it looks like everything is lost here on this earth, that there's no king. But from a different perspective, from a higher perspective, from God's perspective, he sees it all. And he sees victory. 
He sees it all. He sees the whole picture. Even Jesus said in John 16, 33. He said, I've said this to you so that in, in you you may have peace. In the world you face persecution. And he says this awesome words. But take courage. I have conquered the world. Jesus is still alive. And he's, he hasn't gone to the cross yet. And he's already saying, I've, I've overcome the world. It looks like nothing's in charge. See, see that the devil or Satan, he wants to keep us with blinders on, like you put on a horse. He wants us to see what's in front of us, the immediate, the temporal, the bloodshed, and to say, oh, that's just, there's no king. No one's in charge. No one's in charge. But C.S. Lewis beautifully articulates this in Mere Christianity, where he gives this great statement that enemy-occupied territory, that is what this world is. Christianity is a story of how the rightful king has landed you might say landed in disguise and is calling us to take part in a great campaign of sabotage. As we go into Advent next week, we know that to be true, that our king came under the cover of night, under the threat of death, in a town that no one would have expected, in Bethlehem, which was actually prophesied in the book of Micah, hundreds of years before Jesus was even born. What good would come from Bethlehem? What good could come? From Nazareth, under the threat of death, King Herod, our king, did indeed come. And maybe as Christians we are called to sabotage the world with love and prayer and, and service and, and the heart of God to be a channel of the Holy Spirit. Even to reclaim the word Christian, which at its origin meant little Christs. That the early Christians were so much like Christ that people acknowledged that, even if they didn't even believe it. Because even when it looks like everything is lost, the king has already won. He's already overcome. Whatever you're facing, he's already overcome it. It's done. It's finished. And in Daniel chapter 7, you see this vision that Daniel has of, of this royal throne room, of this, this ethereal, eternal majesty. And Daniel records these incredible words. As I watched, thrones were set in place, and an ancient one took his throne. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair on his head was like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, and its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and flowed out from his presence. A thousand thousands served him. That's the best Daniel could do. I don't know how high I could count. That's probably what I would write. And 10,000 times 10,000 stood attending him. Do you see the parallel with Revelation here? The court sat in judgment and the books were opened. As I watched in the night visions, I saw one like a human being coming from the clouds of heaven. We'll get to that human being part. And he came to the ancient one and was presented before him. To him was given dominion and glory and kingship that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that shall not pass away. And his kingship is one that shall never be destroyed. So 500 years before Jesus is even born, Daniel has this vision of a court of God's glory. And it's almost like a royal coronation. And if you read the context around it, you see that it's also a court of judgment against sin and evil and Satan, really. But here's, there's truly two persons, the ancient one, as it says, or we would say God the Father, sitting in a glory, surrounded by a multitude. And that being the ancient one, as it's described, is bestows on another being. The Hebrew could be uh, 
translated in a variety of ways. One that was like a human being or son of mortal or man. Onto this being, son of man, he gives dominion and glory in the kingdom that will never pass away. Or another way that's translated is a jurisdiction of eon. I love that. A jurisdiction of eon that it will never end. This kingship that the ancient one bestows on the son of man. Now this is fascinating, but John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist Church, accurately, I believe, uh, interprets this text as a post-crucifixion, post-ascension Jesus. Coming into the throne room of heaven and God saying, well done, you have accomplished what we have planned. I'm giving you all power and honor and authority as the king of kings. In the early church, Daniel 7 was as close to a bestseller as you could get in the first century. They knew Daniel. They knew Daniel 7. Because not only did Daniel 7 in the book of Daniel um, give a good parallel to the first century Jews who were under occupation by the Romans, but Daniel, as we know, and they were uh, in captivity by, the, by this nation of Babylon. And when he says the son of man, it doesn't just mean he's just a guy. I don't want a savior that's just a guy like me. It's a title as one is saying that he's sent from God. And it's a title that Jesus would refer to himself with throughout the Gospels. And in Daniel 7 could very well have informed Jesus' own calling about his own life. For he definitely knew Daniel. And the early church would certainly tie Jesus to what we just read. So can you imagine standing in Daniel's shoes, standing in front of something so immense and huge that you do your best to describe it with language? I, I realize here on earth we have some examples we could use, like maybe you've been uh, to the Grand Canyon, or maybe you've, sh you've been out on a ship in the middle of the ocean and you really see what the stars look like. I love that. You really see. Many years ago, my wife and I went to Northern California and we saw these redwood trees. Everybody ever been out there before? You see these redwood trees, they're like 400 feet high. And they're like 2,000 years old. Like they started to sprout when Cleopatra was in Egypt. I mean, unbelievable. But even all that, it pales in comparison. Or we, then we went to the Yosemite Valley and we saw Half Dome. And we saw this incredible you know, valley carved out by icebergs. And just as a side note, I watched the documentary Free Solo about the guy that climbed El Capitan without ropes. Have you heard of this guy? Talk about faith. And he's an atheist. Oh. You've got to pray for Alex. He's a good guy. But, which that's like the greatest athletic achievement ever. I'm sorry. Uh, unbelievable. One mistake and he dies. Unbelievable. Anyway. But it's, it's having an experience that you felt so insignificant and yet it was oddly comforting. You felt so insignificant, but you also felt significant at the same time. And Daniel is experiencing this heavy, intense, unreal vision of the throne room of God, of seeing heaven. And royal language is the best he could do. It's the best he could do with what he saw. Because as human beings, when we hear royal, king, queen language, we, we realize it's sort of problematic. We, because as human beings, we see it as flawed. It's broken. It's not perfect. But God is not like earthly rulers. He can be per trusted with perfect judgment and absolute sovereignty. And we, we need to remember that, that the greatest attributes of God is that he is holy. 
He's holy. That's the, probably the number one attribute throughout all the Bible is that God is holy. It means that he's set apart. He's perfect. Perfect uh, light, warmth, life. No imperfection. Never has been, never will be. And holiness and sin cannot coexist. It's like oil and water. And this is one reason why Jesus came for us. So that we would know the holiness of God. Not just when we die, but here and now in our lives. We can know the holy presence of God within us as temples of the Holy Spirit. To pay our debt that we cannot pay. To bridge the divide between God and men. So no metaphor really fits for what Daniel saw. But the term king is about as close as he could get. Now, I'll play devil's advocate. I know people in our culture today, in our world, who maybe aren't religious or something, or maybe they are, they'll hear this term, Christ the King, and they say, really? I didn't get a royal decree in the mail. Is he really the king? I mean, I know that I've heard LeBron James is known as the king. My parents tell me Elvis Presley is the king. I've even eaten out of Burger King. Unfortunately. <laughs> Our world doesn't seem to be under the authority of much of anything, let alone a king. And yet we know that scripture tells us that Jesus is king. And that his kingdom is spiritual. His kingdom is everlasting, a jurisdiction of eon, as it says. What if our world is not the real world? What if his kingdom is the real world? That there's a tension there between what we physically see and yet a reminder that we don't know everything. That maybe it's good to acquiesce, to let go to someone who is higher and has a higher vision than you do, who sees the whole battlefield. And they know that even though it looks like all is lost, the king has already won. That Jesus' kingdom is a spiritual one. In Luke 17, 21. The kingdom of God can't be detected by visible signs. I'll read this instead. Once Jesus was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God was coming, and he answered, The kingdom of God is not coming with things that can be observed. Nor will they say, Look, here it is. Or there it is. For in fact, the kingdom of God is among you. Other translations say, For the kingdom of God can be within you. See, wherever Jesus reigns, that's where he's king. We know that he reigns over the heavens and the earth. We know that he reigns over the physical, the world, the universe. But see, God's not content with just ruling over rocks and trees and animals. He longs to rule over individual lives, to reign over our hearts, to sit on the throne of each of our hearts, and to to know his, his leading, his presence, his peace, his joy. The Spirit, that's what He wants to reign in each of us. Because even when it looks like all is lost, the King has already won. As Christians, we talk a lot about Jesus, but we don't always talk like Jesus. Probably because we're afraid to do so. We don't really want to go around and saying, repent, you know, or like, you know, we're afraid of looking like a fool. Because no one talked like Jesus. The things that he said, you can't make up the way he talked and spoke and and, and would use words. 
And there was a topic he preached about over and over again. The kingdom of God. He talked about it all the time. And it's what you would expect. That he's the king teaching others about the kingdom. And when he talked about the kingdom, he used a word that people don't really like. It's a good word. It's a word that helps us. He would say, repent. John the Baptist would say, repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's not here or there. But it can be within. Repent means surrender your kingdom to God's kingdom. I had an experience many years ago like this when a church I worked at, their vacation Bible school for kids was called Marketplace. And they, would, they took a gym like this and made it into like a first century town where the adults were like, we had robes, we had fake money, and the kids could, you know, buy things, and we'd act out Bible stories like in real time. Very cool idea. Really fun. And that spring, they came to me because I'm six foot three, I'm blue eyes, and I'm a white guy, and they said, hey, you want to be Jesus, right? <laughs> and I said, I said, sure, I can grow a beard. Um, so I was Jesus for a week. And I walked around. I think I raised the dead. Uh, I uh, was friends with Zacchaeus, the short guy. We found a short guy named Greg. And Greg and I became, Zacchaeus and I became friends. I forgave Zacchaeus. And then at one point, the little kids came around me and they sat on my lap and I blessed them. And, and the, the, my disciples came up and they said, oh, get out of here, kids. You can't, you can't sit on Jesus' lap. And I said, no, no, no. The kingdom of God is for ones like this. Those that are innocent and open. Not perfect, but they're open to the love of God. The kingdom of God is for ones like this. Now then for months after, I would walk the church halls and children would see me and they would say, Jesus! <laughs> and they'd run up to me and hug my legs. And I said, I'm not Jesus. But I know him. Now, a lot of times churches preach on what we're saved from. Hell, judgment, sin. You know, and that's true. It's true. I'm not going to deny that. But we don't talk a lot about what we're saved into. And Jesus did that a lot. He talked a lot about what we saved. What are we saved into? And he would say, the kingdom of God. We're saved into the kingdom first. And then out of that will come the, the saving from the sin and the guilt and the death See, Jesus never asked people just to accept him. He asked them to follow him. That he's not just a savior, but he's a sovereign. He's a king. He has authority. He's saying, follow me as the king. Follow me as your king of your life, personally, individually. Follow me. Let me be your king, just as you are. And be included in my kingdom. Because he's teaching on the kingdom because he had the authority to do so. He speaks as the owner, because he is. Now, if you're here today, and you're on the ground, and all you see is death, and destruction, and pain, and suffering, remember that there is a king. And even when it looks like all is lost, the king has already won. We have to remember his perspective. He sees the whole thing. And you know what he sees? He sees victory. What did Jesus say when he hung on the cross? 
It is finished. It is done. Don't hold on to the thing that you screwed up on. It's over. Jesus said it. My blood covers it. The psalmist would write, as far as the east is from the west, I've separated your sin from you. Don't hold on to the thing that God has already forgiven you for. Because even when it looks like all is lost, the king has won. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you that for your victory, for the promises you give us on our behalf, for that we don't want us to hang on to the past, but that if you say that that's enough, you said it's finished, and that your work that you have done on our behalf, that the ancient one has ascribed upon you all honor and glory and power, and that your kingship will never end. God, our human systems of government, they will fail. They will break down. But God, your rule never will. So God, let you, the king of our hearts, may we build our lives upon the foundation of what you teach and who you are. I pray for anyone here today that they're sitting on the throne of their own life and they're tired of it. God, I pray they listen to that because that's you prompting. It's you leading. Maybe the kingdom is not that far from some people here today. And it's simply by faith. It's simply by saying to God, yes, I receive God. I want to follow you. I want to make you the king of my heart, the king of my life. I give you all that I've got. Just as I am, we're all imperfect. And you receive us as we are. By faith, we can pray that prayer right now. And we'll be in your kingdom. So God, Holy Spirit, move in this place in lives that need it. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.